Hey there, my name is Kim, and this is my podcast, Power Up Your Performance. I believe that we have the power to rewrite our stories, change the trajectory of our lives, pour love into the world, conquer monumental challenges, and that movement can be a catalyst for change. Let's grow together. Welcome to Power Up Your Performance. Hey, hey, welcome to the show. My name is Kim Peek, and I'm so glad you are here with me today. Have you ever envied someone who could sing or dance or write or create in ways that you felt were out of your reach? Have you ever wished you were more creative? I have three kids who I would call extremely creative, and I've been asked throughout the years what I did to raise three girls who not only have creative talents, but also think outside the box. And I truly wish I knew exactly how things worked out this way. But looking back through their toddler years and to elementary school, I would say that we had lots of playtime. And they all three gravitated toward imaginary play. They loved making videos. And so even as they got older, they would gather friends to make videos. And sometimes all three of them would each have a friend over Each of my girls are three years apart, so it was a pretty wide range of ages, and they would make these videos, and it would be a multi-day production where they would write a loose idea down and kind of script it out and then cast their show and choose costumes, and we still have a costume closet in our basement where I would keep all of the old Halloween costumes, and then at the end of the season, I would go see what I could pick up on clearance. It might be kind of fun to add to our collection. And then we had all kinds of accessories that were left over from maybe summer camps that they did where they would have theme days. So in our house, making up stories and telling them using actors and video and sometimes even their stuffed animals was just a way of life. It's what they did for fun. But even for someone who didn't grow up in a home where creativity was encouraged and celebrated, I believe that everyone can learn to be creative. You can learn to look for creative solutions and you can learn to become more innovative. This is a skill that can be taught, which is why I was so excited when I found today's guest. I think you will love her insight on creativity and innovation. Isolde Trackenberg believes innovation isn't about the latest fad. It's about creating and collaborating compassionately. This refreshing approach has made her a sought-after speaker, educator, and coach for entrepreneurs and business leaders. Azola has traveled the world as a NASA master trainer, transforming people's perspectives on our planet through a creative teaching process. And she's released books on communication, collaboration, and self-improvement. Nowadays, you'll find her speaking at conferences, looking for the next great ocean beach, or singing for hundreds of people all while interviewing peak performers on creative leadership, innovation, and mindfulness on her hit podcast, The Innovative Mindset. I hope you enjoy this interview with Isolde Trackenberg. Welcome to the show, Isolde. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Thanks so much for having me, Kim. This is so such an honor. Thank you. So let's get started with an easy question. You used to travel the world for NASA. That seems like that would be a job that would be such an honor. What was that like and what did you do for NASA? 
Ah, well, that's you're singing my song here. I loved the work I did for NASA. I worked for over 20 years, not all of it doing this particular job, which is probably my favorite job that I've ever had outside of working for myself. I worked for a program called the GLOBE program, which stands for Global Learning and Observations to Benefit the Environment. And what the GLOBE program did is it, it is, it still does, it still exists. It's a partnership between scientists, students, and teachers where scientists come up with different scientific experiments that they want to know about the Earth. And then they teach teachers and students how to do those exact science experiments. And what's interesting about that is the Earth is huge. And the scientists themselves can't go to every spot on the Earth to take scientific measurements. On the other hand, we have school children all over the world who can take some of those data. And so what we did is they were divided into different spheres, if you will. There's the hydrosphere, the world's water supply, the pedosphere, which is soil, the atmosphere, the air, and sort of that four-mile-high part of the Earth above the ground, and also the biosphere, the world's living uh, trees, plants, that the biome. And so there were these protocols, science experiments that the scientists developed that we then went out and we taught to kids all over the world. There are more than 100 countries that participate in the program. And what's really cool is that the kids themselves are the scientists. They're the ones who are doing the science that literally no one else could do because scientists themselves can't cover every corner of the globe. And the best part for me is that then those kids take the data, they enter them into a database that's housed in Colorado, and then the data itself, they're available to anybody. You could go right now and do research, scientific research, on the data that's been collected since the mid-1990s by students all over the world. And because all the students do it the same way, they're scientifically sound. And hmm. what's really cool about that is that then the kids themselves get to partner up with kids in other countries and other places. So imagine, if you will, you want to study cloud formation, cloud physics, and you are in Kansas, and you'd like to do a comparison study with kids in Australia. What are the clouds like in different parts of the year or different parts of the day even? Well, you could partner with them and at the same time get to know them culturally, who they are, get to know something about their traditions, their history. So it brings in so many different kinds of facets of learning and communication and collaboration that I just loved it. And so that was a real honor because I got to be a very tiny part of bringing this science, but also this intercultural connection to students from all over the world. And what a fun way to make science meaningful for kids and to get them interested in science early. Absolutely. And it is a K-12 program. Actually, Al Gore envisioned it in his book, Earth in the Balance. He was a real proponent of the program because he envisioned the partnership himself. And what's really cool about it is you can have kindergartners who learn the sort of more primary protocols work with 12th graders or with scientists themselves because kindergartners have really great powers of observation. So they could look at a cloud and figure out what kind of cloud it is and they can do that science. So you can have a five-year-old working with a 17-year-old on different levels of the science, but still contributing meaningful information and meaningful communication collaboration along all the grade levels. It was really amazing. I love how that brings in all the collaboration and then also just all the different skills besides science that you're teaching there. 
Absolutely. And science was only one part of it. We brought in history, we brought in language arts, we brought in art. I worked on the soil characterization portion, so my job was to make dirt fun, and I did doggone it. And if you look at ceramics, for example, that's clay. Ceramics, any if you use a dish, a plate, that's clay. If you eat french fries, and in fact, that's how I start my trainings. How many people here like french fries? A bunch of hands grow up, and I say, where do french fries come from? And somebody will inevitably go, McDonald's. And I'm like, okay, but before then. And so we go back and back and back to realize that potatoes are tubers that grow in the soil. And then all of a sudden that meaningful connection is made for the students. And that's incredible because then they can make those connections for themselves. But there's also soil as art. There are soil paintings, pigments. The, the original pigments in paint were made out of soil. So okra or burnt sienna or any of those were all different soil. They were different particles of soil, different colors of soil that were used in some of these paintings. Cave paintings from 30,000 years ago were made with soil, with like red soil on brown rock or boulder. That's soil. That soil is art. So you can bring in history, social science, communication, math. There's certainly a lot of math in this. Language arts, we've written soil songs, so many different ways to enrich the science, the experiment and the experience. So that seems like a really innovative program. And I know that that is one of the things that you love to teach now when you're working with people and companies is mm -hmm. how to innovate. Why do you think innovation is important to us? Ooh, it's a great question. I think innovation is important because, well, first of all, what is an innovator? To me, an innovator is someone with a purpose who is going to think creatively to come up with a solution to a problem that needs solving. That to me is what an innovator does. And it takes creative thinking, it takes ingenuity. I think it often takes collaboration. We can't all be working in a little lab by ourselves. And so it's important because we have lots of issues that face our planet today that need solving. And many of these innovations help us do just that. I mean, if let's look at the washing machine, for example. Why did that come about? Well, it was invented by a woman and generally, not always, but generally, who washed the clothes before washing machines? Women. And a woman went, you know what? There's got to be a better way. <laughs> and what a time saver for women especially, but for everyone, that this innovation, this washing machine helps us do that. Today, someone talking on a cell phone would not understand that there would be a time when that was miraculous, that you could do that wirelessly. Or at one point back in 1876, was the first telephone call. Well, why did we need to do that? And I have a really interesting story about this. I was teaching a NASA workshop in Africa. I was in, we were in South Africa and uh, I was teaching to about 80 people. And one of the people there got a phone call on his cell phone and he opened the phone and started talking while I was teaching. And I was like, hmm, he's talking. He's not leaving the room. And I sort of stopped everything and I said, excuse me, uh, would you mind taking that outside? And he's like, oh, no, no, no. I want to stay here and learn from you. And I said, great. Well, then would you mind, you know, stopping the conversation and turning off your phone? And he's like, oh, I can't do that. Somebody might call. And I went, okay, and sort of kept going. But here's the interesting thing. After that session, somebody, one of the South African folks came over to me and he goes, you need to understand something. These people have never had landlines. So they went straight from no phone at all to cell phones. And suddenly, 
because Finland with Nokia came in, this is back in the 90s, they came in and they gave cell phones to everybody to put up cell towers. Suddenly they had a way of communicating with towns and villages 30 miles away mm. without having to go there. And it was a miracle to them, right? They just, they had no way of doing it before short of going there. So culturally, you know, and boy, did I get put in my place, right? Because I didn't realize it. I didn't think about yeah, it. Yeah, it's very so, interesting. Yeah. And, and they went straight from no communication, hopped over landlines, never had them, and went straight to cell phones. And so that innovation helped them become available to each other, be able to connect and communicate in a way they simply had never been able to do before. Yeah, I love that. So thinking back to your definition of innovation, by that definition, whether you're in business or not, everybody has the potential to be an innovator. Yes. <laughs> Again, you're singing my song, Kim. Absolutely. <laughs> I think everybody does. I think we all have our innate creative genius. We all have ingenuity. We all come up with unique solutions to problems when we need to, right? Again, that's solving the problem. And I have recently become fascinated by the instant of inspiration. Before you even verbalize it, the instant a new idea hits, what do you do with it? Do you go, ooh, what's this? Let me be curious about it and let's see if I can pursue it. Or do you go, oh, that'll never work, right? Who are you when new ideas hit? When inspiration strikes, what happens? And a lot of us have been taught that we shouldn't pay attention to that voice because it sometimes feels really out of left field or really bizarre. And so we sort of tamp it down. But instead, I advocate pay attention, pay attention to that inspiration because it is trying to tell you information. Your subconscious has sort of bubbled something up for you to listen to, to pay attention to. And it's worthwhile to see what it is and where it goes and don't discount it immediately. So if you do that, if you start becoming aware, I keep notebooks with me everywhere I go because I write down whatever ideas come and I've written books based on an idea that sort of bubbled up right then. So you never know when an idea might strike you. And I think we all have them. We just don't all pay attention to them. So you say that we all need three things to innovate and change the road that we're going down as people, businesses, and nations, and that those three things are creativity, compassion, and collaboration. Tell us a little bit about these three C's and how they help us interact as people and professionals. I love that you asked that question. First of all, the three C's are sort of sacred to me. I think there's a wonderful proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I love that proverb. I think the notion of working together on things is so important because we are not all equally strong in things, right? So I might be an, an innovator or an idea person. That might be my strength. Somebody else might be an implementer, right? So if you're a visionary and you have ideas coming at you all the time, that's great but you may not know how to actually put it into motion. So partnering up with someone who's more of an implementer, someone who can more do the things or help brainstorm, you can sort of draw on each other's inspirations and ideas and then be practical about how you're going to put them together. That's really important. And that's where collaboration comes in. And that creativity part, again, I think one of the things that is important is that we all have that unique, innate, creative genius. We all do. 
We just don't all pay attention to it. And it may not take the form of being a painter like my husband. My husband is a painter. We may not all be that way. We may be creative in different ways, but it's that notion of allowing that agility of mind and agility of heart and spirit to work through us so that we can create, so that we can then implement is how we do it. We create by paying attention to the things that are important to us. And I, when I work with my clients and when I go into companies and do this, I always ask everybody, do you remember what you wanted to be when you were a kid? And if so, what was it? And why is that important? Because a lot of the things that we pretended or played with or loved when we were children are probably the seeds of what we're best at. We're naturally drawn to the things as children that we're good at. I was not good at drawing. I can draw like I'm five, right? But I doodled, but I was really drawn to singing and I was really drawn to music and I'm still a professional musician today. That's one of the fun things that I do. So within that, the seeds of your creativity lie. You know, you can find them if you go back and sort of figure out for yourself, did you bang on pots? Did you build forts? Did you make pretend? Did you tell stories? Did you doodle? What was it that you did? And the seeds of it, it may not be what you do today, but it can inform how you are creative today. And the last part of that is communication, even though that's the middle of the, the three C's, and that's telling the story. I think telling our stories is so important. Communicating, not just to people you work with, which is collaboration, but communicating and listening and paying attention lets you get inspired, but it also gets your story out there. And we're all natural storytellers. Every single one of us tells stories. Like the first time you had to make up an excuse because you were late and your parents were like, where were you? And you were like, well, I was on my bike and then I got a flat tire and then we were at the store and I needed a, a Diet Coke. And so that, you know, that's it. You were telling a story. And that communication is literally the second thing we do in our lives. Literally, the first thing you do you breathe. The second thing you do, probably cry, right? Like, what is going on? I've all of a sudden been born. What? Right? So we communicate immediately upon being born. And that's really important because it's speaking with authority about where you are and stating that you want to be in relationship with others. And that's why those three C's, I think, are the, the key to how to innovate and how to solve so many of the problems we have in the world today. So then what do you say to somebody, oh, I, I'm not creative, I'm not a good communicator. What do you say to somebody to kind of get them over that mindset so that they can start developing their skills in those areas? Well, again, you're asking fabulous questions. I think the first thing I say to someone who says, I'm not creative, is I'll ask them, do they doodle? Do you doodle? If you doodle, you're creative. We all doodle, probably, when we're taking notes or whatever. Probably you can make some kind of face or some kind of pattern. And I'll go back to that same question. What did you like to do when you were a kid? Because chances are it was somehow creative. Children are naturally creative. So chances are you were creative. You might just have lost the thread. To someone who says they're not a good communicator, we're not all talented equally for anything. Some people, Mozart was a genius with creativity, but he was rubbish at maintaining his finances, right? So we have different strengths and it's okay if we have different strengths. And if you feel like you're not a good communicator, I would say then 
Don't try to communicate. First, breathe. Second, listen. Third, ask questions based on what you hear. So I'll tell you a story. This is a, and it was an interesting little story. I went to a festival that I was going to be teaching at, and I decided to do a little experiment. I decided not to reveal anything about myself at all, just not talk about myself at all. Instead, the entire 10 days, all I did was ask people questions about themselves. That's all I did. And here's what's interesting is how many people told me, oh, you're so easy to talk to. You're such a great conversationalist. And I literally didn't say anything about myself. I was just asking people questions about themselves. That's a brilliant, it's a brilliant strategy because A, people will think you're a great conversationalist, but B, you also get information so that you can, if you want to, when you feel comfortable, either ask a question or offer something that is relatable based on what you've been hearing. And the other thing is, and this is something I, I wrote a book called Speak From Within, which is all about how to motivate and communicate with audiences. And chapter 12, and it's probably my favorite chapter, it's called Know Your Role. And this is something my mother taught me. She's very shy. She's a very shy woman. She's also a singer. And where I come from in the Soviet Union, it's a sort of a singing culture. And whenever people had parties, my mother was asked to sing. And so she would sing. And that was great. And we were talking about that notion of performing and the fact that she had stage fright. And I asked her about that. And she said, well, I know my role. And I said, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, when I walk in, if they're asking me to sing, I know that I'm going to sing and that's the lens I work through. But if I'm not singing at a party, I immediately come in and I ask the host, what can I do to help? And I give myself a role. And the role might be the person who takes the coats or the role might be the person who hands out the drinks or the role might be the person who knows where the bathroom is. If you choose something that can be the lens through which you communicate with people and you know that role, then you can be helpful and you can also communicate with people based on that. And then you can bring them further into your sphere if you want to, because you had a good solid starting point that didn't make you feel unstable or not confident. That's a really cool tip because I like that because it would be helpful to introverts. Absolutely. Especially thinking of it as in a party situation mm -hmm. or a networking situation. You Absolutely. sometimes don't know what to say. And so if you have a role that you're at least in your mind that this is your role, then all of a sudden you have a purpose and Absolutely. you're not so stuck on what to say. I like that. Yeah, thank you. I the, Chapter 12 in my book. <laughs> so going back to the creativity thing, one of the things I've always thought is that I have never seen a child that is not creative. I mean, children are all creative. Sure. And so I like this idea of thinking about going back to what is it that you were good at when you were little? What did you like when you were young? Because I feel like so often as you go through the educational system, your mm. creativity is really programmed out of you in many mm. cases. Mm. <sighs> poor teachers, poor, poor teachers. I <laughs> Teachers are my heroes. No, seriously, because imagine you're given this huge stack of things you are required to teach and many tests that you are required your students to pass. And... Then you, on top of that, have to build all your lesson plans and figure everything out. 
And then, of course, the parents have all of these expectations. So a teacher's life is really, I mean, incredibly challenging. And one of the things that teachers don't have time to do because of the many requirements placed on them is they don't often have time to then, on top of that, encourage their children's creativity. On the other hand, there are some really fascinating things that teachers can do to help kids be creative in ways that will help and enrich everyone's experience. As much as possible, interactivity in school is, to me, one of the most important things. The more kids can collaborate, the more they can create. And I'm going to tell the story in a minute, but there's a wonderful part in the book, in Daniel Coyle's book, The Culture Code, all about, it's the very beginning, actually, they got a bunch of different groups of people together, and they gave them marshmallows, chopsticks, and a strip of 10 inches of masking tape. And they said, you have to build to each group, you have to build a structure and the structure that is the tallest will win. And they had MBA students and they had first graders and they had engineers. And what was really interesting is whose structure was the tallest? What do you think? Oh, I kind of want to go with the engineers, but I want to believe it was the little kids. And it was the little kids. And the reason is because immediately the people with the MBAs were going for the more sort of high-minded, oh, we must look at all of this and all of that and all of this and all of that. And they started sort of jockeying for position and the engineers were studying it and they had a limited amount of time to do it. And the kindergartners just worked together and they didn't speak much. They were like, no, here, try that. Wait, this. And they would just put things together and then boom, they had it because they were innately working together to each other's strengths without having to rely on the thinking about who is the best at this, who has the better ideas. None of that happened. The kids themselves were just in it and doing it because they were in the moment. I highly recommend The Culture Code. It's sort of a group success book, how different groups succeed. I highly recommend it as a book. But let me get back to the, the story with the teacher that I was there for. I was teaching architecture to a bunch of sixth graders which you might go to architecture, really? Yeah, but we were working on blueprints because we had decided that in order to learn more about satellite data, that they were going to figure out how to read satellite data based on a microcosm, which was their school. The school itself was actually thinking about doing an extended sixth grade wing. And they were trying to figure out, they were in the process of looking at designs. And I said, okay, sixth graders, we're going to figure that out. Why don't we build design a sixth grade wing. And so we did, and we created the blueprints, and then we laid it out outside with markers like an architect would do. And the kids were broken up into groups, and they were going to be doing it. Now, here's what's interesting. One of the kids, as I was trying to teach this, was so disruptive. He was running around the class, like I'm talking, and he's like running circles, and yelling for no reason, and, you know, shouting whatever words came in into his mind. And I was a little rattled, but I start every presentation to kids with a picture, a NASA photo of an image of the earth, a composite image of the earth. And I put up and it, it's, you can see part of Africa, part of the Arabian Peninsula. And I always say, what do you see? And they're like, the planet. And some will go clouds and some will go dirt, some will go water, whatever. And I pointed to the Arabian Peninsula and I said, what is this? And 
everybody's like, no, 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 because it's not something they're used to seeing. And the one kid who was running around goes, that's the Arabian Peninsula, but we can't see the geopolitical boundaries. But on the Arabian Peninsula, you will find Oman, Saudi Arabia, this and that, and Yemen, blah, blah, blah. And my eyes went, ding, what? <laughs> and I said, really? So I put up another picture and I'm like, what's this? And he goes, that's Australia. That's an easy one. And below it, you'll find Tasmania. And to the southeast of it, you'll find New Zealand. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so from then on, what I did that whole rest of the lesson is anytime I needed geography, I brought him in and I deputized him and he became the most amazing angel to work with. And what's interesting about it is that the teacher herself, she emailed me a few months later and she's like, you need to know this. He's become the star pupil because I relate everything back to geography for him now. Anything we're doing in math, we relate back to geography and he knows it because he loves it. So we tapped into what he innately loved to help him focus all of that energy and all of that excitement into something he enjoyed. And if I were queen, honestly, I would want to advocate that for all kids that we tap into what they love and let them bring that kind of curiosity and excitement and inspiration to each other's learning. And that's how they can collaborate. And that's how they can learn really well. And we as teachers can be guides to make sure they're not going, well, two plus two equals five, doggone it, right? But we can help them foster that innate sense of curiosity about what they're already curious about in a way that will let them create and innovate well into adulthood. That is an amazing story. I think it would be so hard to be a teacher these days for sure. because there's so much more going on than the, in the classroom that they're having to deal with besides just worrying about teaching whatever the subject is. So right. that's a really a great example, I think, just of if the teacher had the time to put right. the thought into all of those things, where they could take that and really help somebody turn things around in their education even. Sure. And, you know, the same thing can happen in companies. There are people who have these gifts that we don't know about or aren't aware of. And if we give them the opportunity to highlight those gifts, we can then work together in a way that, that they thrive, but also that they bring benefit to the entire organization. It's just that often we don't pay attention. Why? Because there are different focal points and we don't always have time and we don't always have the directive. Again, I say this a lot. If I were queen, we would do that more. We would find out more about what people's interests are and help bring those interests into their work. Because if you're interested in what you're doing, then you'll do so much better for yourself and the organization you're with. So for somebody who's not a leader or a manager, are there ways for them to use these ideas in a way that will improve their workplace, for their work environment, their work culture for themselves and for other people without being in the leadership role? Hmm. I think that's a great question. And, and yes, absolutely. I don't think you have to be a leader, although I think we are all leaders in one way or another. It's just the size of the group that we're leading that might make the difference in that definition. The way I look at it is if you want to be doing something, if you want to explore something, then looking at it from the perspective of how would this benefit where I am? If it's a group of people planning a vacation or it's a group of people in an organization or a nonprofit, how can I frame this as a benefit for the people that I'm working with and for? And if you can do that, then you will be able to 
presented in such a way that these are the benefits that it will bring to you if you let me do it, that they'll let you do it. You know, I remember, again, it's funny how much I'm talking about NASA today, but I was working at NASA once and we were doing a big Earth Day event at Union Station in Washington, D.C., because I worked at NASA in D.C. And I decided that what I wanted to do was help people learn how to make clouds in bottles. And I didn't present it to my boss. I'm not going to do what you want me to do. Instead, I'm going to do this. I went, okay, he's a satellite guy. How can I help him have his satellite highlighted while we're talking about clouds? And so I decided to go, well, if people learn more about cloud cover, how many clouds there are in the sky, what percentage of the sky is covered by clouds, because satellites can't see through clouds. So So a satellite looking from top down can't see through clouds. And if we know more about how much cloud cover there is, we can then have a better predictive knowledge about what's going on below the clouds. And then the people on the ground can give us that information. So that's a really good way to relate the two. How would you feel if I did this activity talking about cloud cover and satellites, but teaching people how to make clouds and bottles? And he went, that sounds great. It had nothing to do with what he was doing, but because I focused it in a way that would benefit him, he was excited to do it. And I did focus on it. I mean, it's not like I totally didn't focus on it when I was doing the activity with the public. But the point was that I was able to relate it to how it would help my boss in his project. And he was much more amenable to me doing it because of that. I'm really fascinated right now just about different strategies for making your own work environment better so that people can be happier while they're working. Oh, yes. It seems like that is one of those things that has come out of our COVID situation. Either people are stuck in jobs that they're unhappy with because they can't find something else, or maybe the flip side too, you lost your job and now you're like, how do I find something that's my ideal situation? Sure. How do you think that these frameworks that you're talking about, how could somebody use some of these things to improve their current situation? Let's, you know, you hear about so many people who have what they would call a bad boss, and maybe it is a bad boss, maybe it isn't. But how do you use these same communication and innovation strategies, maybe to make your workplace more enjoyable? It's a great question. And I think for me, always communication first starts with listening and finding out what they need and what they want. If if you're working with a challenging boss, what is it that they actually need? That's one way of doing it. And then figure out how to give them the benefit of that. The other thing is, and I love this, and it's a challenging thing to do, but it's an interesting one to do. I get to their no. What is their no? What do they not want? And then once you know that, you can turn that around and give them what they do want give you an example. My husband and I needed a new dishwasher and he was reluctant to say the least. And I was trying to get a new dishwasher. He was just like, we can't spend the money. We can't spend the money. Okay. So how do I get to his no? And so I sat him down and I said, honey, do you want to eat out of dirty dishes? And he went, well, no. And then I said, well, what do you think we need to do about that? And he's like, oh, I guess we need a new dishwasher. And that was a way of reframing it. So one of the things that you can do if you have a challenging boss is reframe the situation, figure out how to look at it from the perspective of refocusing what the path is. And also, I think we all have to remember we're all people, right? You may be a boss, you may be not a boss, 
You may be a manager, you may be a worker bee, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, we are all people and it behooves us all to remember that we are all beings on this earth. And that means that we fundamentally are the same. Some of us might have more resources than others, but we're all the same. And this is going to sound terrible, but I'm going to have to say it. If you are a person who does not have the wherewithal to take that on, find cohorts, find other people you can collaborate with, you can work with to make things happen and come to pass that you need to come to pass. And remember also breathe, you know, <laughs> that sounds silly, but it's true. We have to remember that ultimately no one is worth any more than anyone else. We're all equal first, but also I hate saying this, and I'm sorry, Kim, this sounds, but attitude is so much of this. How What we bring to it ourselves is so important. And do you ultimately need to be an innovator who works in your basement instead of the job you're doing? Then maybe that's what you do. You know, maybe you work and then you have side hustles to make your life happier. Ultimately, I think it's best to look at what you're doing and make sure it's what you want to be doing, but we can't all change our job. So what can you be doing? And this is a good question to ask. I ask this to myself whenever I'm really frustrated. What is one small thing I can do right now to improve the situation? So it doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to be a, a mind-blowing gale storm. It can be something small that you do. It could be getting up from your chair and going for a walk out in the sunshine. It could be getting a drink of water. Small things can change your perspective. And with a change of perspective, you just see things differently. And that might mean that you will be able to approach it from a fresh perspective. And I feel like you just combined, you included all three of those three C's in this answer. I mean, it sounds like these are just really the core ways to go about solving so many problems. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I think I think so. We You're can, like, yes, Kim, that's been yeah. my point. Well, but you know, but see, that's the thing. There, Everybody's got, there are so many people out there teaching this stuff and not the three C's necessarily, but there are so many people teaching. It's weird right now to me that everybody's a marketer for their own thing, right? Everybody's doing social media and we don't all do it effectively. We all have a platform. And it behooves us to learn how to do it effectively because otherwise you're spending a lot of time showing people what you ate for dinner, but not necessarily advancing your mission, your personal mission, whatever that happens to be. Mine happens to be to save the planet and the animals. That's my personal mission. And that's what I ultimately want to do. That's where that compassion piece comes from within the three C's. Thinking about how we care, thinking about what we care about, and then putting our efforts towards that goal is so important. That compassion piece of it is critical because it lets us think outside ourselves. And it lets us be someone who is aware of even the suffering outside ourselves. And when you're aware of it, you necessarily do something about it because we are all kind in one way or another. We just may not always have the resources to expend on it. So yeah, I mean, those three things, creativity, compassion, collaboration, so important. Now, before we wrap up, I do want to go back to this thing that is one of your passions, which is the planet. What are some things that we can all do to make our planet, to help our planet? It can be really big. You can go and work 
on behalf of stopping poaching in Africa, for example. You can do that. You can change your whole life and go do that. You can do something as simple as turn off the water while you're brushing your teeth, right? Something like eight gallons a minute flow down the sink if you keep the water on while you're brushing your teeth. Don't do it. Turn off, you know, wet your toothbrush, put your toothpaste on and turn off the water, brush your teeth, turn the water back turn the water back on and then rinse and then you're done. So you haven't wasted water. There are so many things like that that we can do, recycling, all of that. But again, become aware, increase your awareness of your role in this huge system that is the earth system, because we all have a role to play. So you can do things like recycling. You can do things like take a walk instead of driving to the post office, if that's what you need to do. You can turn off the water. You can only run the dishwasher when it's fully loaded. You can look and see what are the places in your area that might need volunteers if you can volunteer. I don't really know, except for build the awareness of what's needed and then fill that need. You know, it's kind of like chapter 12 in my book, right? It's know your role, figure out what needs doing, and then put your hands and your heart into it. And that's how we solve things together. I love it. I love all these stories you've told, all the concrete examples you've given. Tell people about your podcast and how to find your books. Oh, thank you so much. So my podcast is called The Innovative Mindset. And on there, I talk to peak performing creatives and thought leaders, change makers, and entrepreneurs whose mission it is to change the world, right? So always with an eye towards that social impact, creative, environmental focus. And I'm super excited because coming up in the next couple of weeks, we're going to have Captain Paul Watson, who is a co-founder of Greenpeace, for example. So we're going to have that. We're going to have people who have ethical lifestyle brands. We have people who've developed social impact apps like Have Need. Josh Klein, who's the CEO and founder, was just on the show. And it's a bartering at scale app where they're looking to have people in developing nations be able to barter for what they need. And it's not just I have a cup and you need a cup and you have headphones and I need headphones and we do a one-to-one trade. It's I have a cup and you don't need a cup, but you have headphones and I have need of headphones, but somebody else has something you need, which is a camera. So we can do a three-way trade and they can do up to five trades like that. And they will keep track of it and help you send it to anywhere in the world. So amazing stuff like that is going on. And the app is live. So if you want to get in on the app, it's called Have Need, and it's fabulous. So lots of different people like that who are looking to innovate, to change the world, to help people, to help animals, to help the environment. It's amazing. And I love highlighting their stories and bringing that knowledge out. And my books, you can find at isoldat.com and look under books. I, I don't remember the URL offhand, but but isoldatea.com has all of my speaking, all of my workshops that I do to help companies and organizations, and my coaching to help people sort of thrive in their creativity and their compassion and their collaboration. And you can find the books there. Speak From Within is all about communication. Win the Day is all about sort of micro goals. You'd get a goal for a day. So there's a way of looking at who you are today and who you want to be by the evening because we evolve every second. So that compassion starts with you and it can also end with you at the end of the day. I love just that thought about how we evolve every second and how you could be somebody different by the end of the day. I Mm -hmm. think that's a take on that. 
that people don't always think about because you think we always think in terms of big, massive transformations, but it is that day by day, minute by minute change that adds up. Yeah. Small steps will lead to climbing mountains eventually. I have a friend who's on the Appalachian Trail right now. She's hiking it. And she was talking about she had to climb the highest mountain she's had to climb so far. And she said somebody gave her great advice. They said, one step, very small, buy another step, very small. And you don't think to do big steps at all. In fact, you just do tiny, tiny steps and you'll get there. You'll climb that mountain, but you do it with tiny, tiny steps. And that's how you save your level of exertion, keep it low to let you eventually climb the mountain without feeling like you are half dead. Wow. Great advice. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing all your stories and ideas and insights today. It's been great having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, Kim. Thank you for joining me for season four of Power Up Your Performance. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend, rate, review, and follow. Dream big and get out there and explore.